you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. I want to invite you to get as comfortable as you possibly can. Maybe put the coffee to the side, kick up your feet. Uh, if you're comfortable, close your eyes. I want to think about God. What we believe about God, how it's shaped us, and what we do with that. When, when we talk about God, I want you to picture what first comes to mind. Maybe in terms of God's uh, transcendence. Do you picture the God who is out there holding the whole of the world in his hand? Or do you picture the God who is eminent and close? The God who draws near to us through the power of his spirit? When you think of God and God's plans, do you think of uh, a God who has uh, a master plan and allows us to live within it and to be free agents of, of our own volition and to respond to his grace? Or do you think about God in terms of him uh, having a, a grand plan for even the steps of your days where, where what you are doing are, is, is somewhat predestined by God and his plans? I want you to think about God's knowledge. How do you relate to it? Does, does God know what is happening in, in the very moments as it unfolds? Does God know ahead of time all of uh, events because he's uh, willed them into being? Or does he know the events that are going to happen based on our choices? How do you tend to think about God's knowledge? How do you tend to picture God? Is it a disembodied uh, soul kind of environment? Is it uh, a God who uh, somehow looks human? Is it a God who looks like the pictures that were in your Sunday school room growing up of Jesus with the dove on the side of his face or the kids surrounding him? When you think about Jesus, do you think about Jesus primarily as the Savior who died on your behalf and set you free from the weight of sins? Or do you tend to think of Jesus as Lord who rules over all of creation and, and who intercedes to God the Father on our behalf? When you think about God the Spirit, do you, do you tend to think of the Spirit as the one who enables you to live out God's mandate? Or do you more often think of the Spirit as the one who uh, gives you comfort? How we think about God shapes everything else in our lives. It shapes even our understanding of the church. I want you to think about uh, ecclesiology. Think about the church itself. How do we best live out God's mandate to, to go to all the ends of the earth and to make disciples? How do we live out uh, the mandate to teach? How do we live out uh, this mandate to enact justice and mercy? What part of the church's life most resonates with you? That when, when you think church, this is what you think. How about uh, our primary uh, relationship to the people within the church? 
Are, are the folks within Andover, folks you simply are united in, a, in usually a building that we worship in or, or hearing the same sermon? Are we united in what we go and do? Are we united in who we reach? Are we united in enacting justice? If, if we think one thing about the church, it shapes how we live one way. And if we think another thing, it shapes how we live a different way. Our, our ideas of theology come together with our ideas of ecclesiology and invite us to think about our ethics. What do we say and do on the basis of our morals and on our formation? We, we as Christians uh, explicitly practice Christian ethics. This is different than a secular thought system. It's how we embody our discipleship. How do, how do those things impact what we tell people? You can see this at funerals when somebody will say, well, God just had a plan or God needed that person. You hear that, uh, that that person is shaped by God as one who is controlling all the actions of the day-to-day of our lives. You can hear it when somebody says, I just don't understand why God didn't act. I've heard the culmination of people's theology and ecclesiology come together in ethics in, in some very polarizing ways over the last number of months. Uh, between our congregation and my family and my friends, I've heard some of these thoughts. You cannot be a Christian and have voted for Donald Trump. I've had other friends tell me, you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat. I've heard uh, some groups from the Catholic Church say that Joe Biden is a model of Catholic faith and piety. And others would say because he is pro-choice that he is anathema and should be denied the table. We've seen faithful people read the scriptures and look at abortion in two different lights. And, and our, our denominational position is very uh, robust and thought out because of this uh, different ways of thinking God and coming to bear on this image. And, and the way we think about God and ecclesiology and ethics shapes how we feel about the church being closed right now. This week I've heard exasperation that we're not open. And I've heard thanksgiving that we are not open. Many of you kind of rest somewhere in the middle. You, you wish that we would be open, but you know uh, why, we're, why we're doing what we're doing. What you think about God, what you think about the church, shape how you live ethically. It shapes uh, really about everything else you think about, how you approach uh, justice. What does justice actually look like? How do you approach holiness? How do you engage yourself with the world? Uh, there are theologians who've made their whole lives at, at answering these questions about how they impact our existence and our ethics uh, H. Richard Niebuhr and, her br- and his brother, Reinhold, uh, probably two of the most famous, they had this, uh, this kind of rousing time around the time of Bart and around uh, James Cone, this discussion of Christ and culture. I want to look at uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's five paradigms of Christ and culture. The first is Christ against culture. And, and this paradigm uh, that uh, history is the story of a rising church in Christian life and a dying pagan civilization, that as the church rises... As it grows and as it's formed, we're actually kind of wiping away pagan culture. His, uh, his next one is the Christ of culture. That, 
that there is no separating uh, the two, that, that we can't distinguish between uh, the Christian world and the secular world. His next one, this is Christ above culture. This one who sees that uh, all of human history is a period of preparation under the law and under gospel uh, when we're waiting for that ultimate communion, that final time in new creation when things are made right, which, which is similar but different from the next one, which is Christ and culture and paradox. We're in this struggle of faith and unbelief, this period between resurrection and new creation, this, this inner time, which, which begins to sound even more like the next one with a little bit of difference, that Christ is transforming culture, that we're in this moment of history where God's deeds uh, and humanity's response to them live into uh, this be- between-the-times moment. It's, it's this thin space where heaven is coming down and earth uh, is here and, and somehow we're living in both and God is making the secular divine. He's turning the secular sacred. Tim Keller has done a lot of the same work. His is, his is four uh, areas. His first is two kingdoms. This is most popular way of thinking in, in the Lutheran church that there is the realm of heaven and there's the realm of earth and, and they really uh, don't overlap what is happening in heaven is what's happening in heaven. What happens on earth is happening on earth. And, and somehow we uh, find ourselves living in the kingdom of heaven despite our bodies being in the kingdom of earth. Uh, his next is this model of relevance. Uh, relevance. We see this with uh, liberation theology that says that we shouldn't be uh, captives and bound up, that we should be set free. We see this in the seeker-sensitive church and the emergent church that says, no, we, we actually need to encounter people where they are and, and to bring them out of whatever darkness they're in. His, his next part is uh, transformationist. We, we can really think about this of the rise of the new Calvinists, the uh, Acts 29 network, the, uh, I don't even remember what they're called, the young, woke Calvinist, uh, Mark Driscoll, and his crowd really uh, kind of made this model famous recently. This is that culture is terrible and we need to go transform it, that we need to uh, look at every bit of evil out there and we need to redeem it and make it better. And then, uh, his final model is counterculturalist. Our Anabaptist friends uh, probably are the best example of this. Mennonites, Anabaptists, who would, who would stand apart from culture and say, no, it is bad. And so we need to separate and, and divorce from it and name that there is uh, something holy within uh, God's, God's plans for us. And so we can't be tarnished in the world. Uh, the problem with both these is that they're great for reflecting on the past. I'm thinking of how the church has done at this point in time or at this point in time, uh, studying what happened back then. But you can already begin to see that both these models uh, recognize that we don't ever actually live in one quadrant, do we? Or one of the five neighbor patterns that, that in fact, we, we wander through our days uh, ebbing and flowing with all these uh, kind of approaches to Christ and culture, to us living in the world Whatever has risen to the top of our understanding of theology or, or, or of ecclesiology has probably most shaped how we're living in that model that day. And it's an important work for us to do, to think about uh, our formation and how it impacts us and the world today. How do, how do we live in culture? Uh, Paul is bumping up against all this with the church at Corinth. He is... Uh, got a bunch of folks who have bought into this Jesus movement who, who so love God 
but yet, yet live in a culture that tells them this is what's important or this is what's important. Uh, it's a, a culture that has, in many ways, uh, set up possessions and family as the telos, the end of uh, humanity's purposes. If you can gain wealth and build a family, you have succeeded. And so uh, as this, this love of Christ and this cultural uh, landscape coming to crash each other they're living in a time where they think Christ is coming back any day how do we balance this should we marry or since Christ is coming soon should, should we get divorced so that we can all just uh, live with just our hearts pointed towards the kingdom should we gain possessions or should we give them all away what do we do and, and Paul writes back to them in this letter, uh, unpacking for them what it looks like for them and their culture to live in the gap between the first arrival of Christ and the second arrival of Christ. And so he, he in this part, tackles both heads on. He, he's come uh, just a few verses before what, what was read today and said, look, Jesus didn't say anything about whether we should get married or not get married. So I, Paul, through God's mercy, ask that you trust me you trust me to have thought about this and attended to the Spirit. And so here, here's what I'm going to say, Corinthian church. If you're married, don't get divorced. If you're single, don't seek a marriage. If you have possessions, don't let them control you. But don't seek out new things. Because at all those, you're distracting yourself. You're letting something else control your heart. As we wait for the arrival of Christ. You know, last week he said, uh, there are great many things that are lawful, but are they good? There are things that are lawful, but do they control our hearts? And two of the things that uh, were lawful were family relationships and possessions. And he's, he's saying, it's more complicated than that. I can't give you a clear answer, should everybody get married or should everybody get divorced? I can't give you a clear answer, like, should you not have any possessions? But what I'll tell you is we need to live as if the kingdom could come into full experience right now. So, uh, so hear this, Corinthians. Turn your heart to Christ. Live in his ways. Make that be the focus of your existence. If you read around, it actually starts to see that Paul thinks that uh, singleness is the preferred uh, state of affairs for Christians, that, that that should be the default for us to live a holy life unencumbered by uh, other folks, right? If you read this, uh, singleness is elevated. And I think it, it so glaringly points out how poorly we, the church, have treated our single people. We relegate single people over to here or over there. We elevate marriage as if it's the end of our discipleship. And Paul says, at least, at least in this scenario, this is not what's important. What's important is the work of the church in the world. We have something else we need to focus on. Because we know that Paul actually uh, holds marriage in high regard. In Ephesians, he's going to uh, use this metaphor of uh, the bride and the groom to talk about the church and Christ. But at the same time, he's going to talk about uh, actually mutual submission amongst husbands and wives and what it looks like uh, for uh, spouses to live in love in a way that glorifies God. So uh, we can't even turn to Paul and say, and say, is this about a theology of marriage? Because Paul is not consistent on 
whether marriage is something we should pursue or not. So instead we have to think uh, more broadly within the context of the days and see what, uh, what he's getting at in the bigger picture. Uh, almost anything we talk about uh, can go the same way. If you ask me to talk to you about uh, the biblical model of marriage, I can't give you a yes or no statement. Because uh, we have to take the whole canon into, into account and look at it. If you ask me uh, to, to give you a theology uh, to deal with, a, with the idea of abortion, I can't give you a simple answer because our scriptures are so full. If you ask me to talk about human sexuality, I can't give you one scripture because our scriptures are so full. And at each turn, they invite us to consider what we think about God, what we think about the church and what we think about ourselves and how together we put that to live in this gap between the first uh, advent and the second advent. I've gotten where uh, it's hard to answer uh, some, some questions with, what do you think? Well, what I want to say is, here are three books about this idea. Let's, let's read all these and talk about them. Let's, let's set a first time to get together and talk, and then let's come back a week later and talk again. If we're finding easy answers to how to live in the world, I think we're probably uh, causing harm. If we throw out a uh, proof text here and a proof text there about any issue, we're most likely causing harm. Paul he asked them to think about something bigger, which is what does it mean to live between the Advents? I've been uh, greatly uh, shaped by my friend Teddy Ray. He's a pastor of our offerings community, and he's begun to set up this paradigm that Britt is going to set up on the screen for us, uh, where what we're looking at is this, this idea that maybe we could think about how to live in the gap between the Advents if we, if we think in terms of uh, love. And, and Teddy set up two axes, the horizontal axis, uh, axis, axis, I know how to say axis, everybody. Uh, the horizontal axis is uh, this idea of love of God and uh, love of neighbors and or creation, the whole that, that Christ is called good. And then a vertical axis that uh, is drawn out of Paul's writings that says cling to what is good on one end and, and hate what is evil. And so Teddy wrote a lengthy blog post about where we find ourselves in the intersection of these quadrants that uh, bless the good it's where we cling to what is good and we love God's creation. And, and, and his example, and I think is probably the foundation of, of how we need to think about other people, is that this, this corner, if we live the most in loving God's creation and to cling to what is good, we see the image of God in all of humanity. And that is our starting point. That before we jump into any other applied ethics or anything like that, uh, our, our beginning reality is that people are good because they bear God's image. But then we have another quadrant, this quadrant of seeking justice, because we, we love God's creation and all that are in it. We see uh, people as good, and we hate what is evil. So we, we pursue justice, this, this uh, ability to, to stand with and for folks who can't, to, to help say that this is not right and is not good. This next quadrant uh, we find ourselves clinging to what is good and loving God. This is the call to be holy. So what's it look like for us to be transformed, to, for sin not to reign in our lives, for us to grow in love of God, to, to manifest the fruits of the Spirit? And then finally, there's this, this bottom one, which is uh, speaking truth. 
this exists at the intersection of loving God and hating what is evil, that at times we have to say, no, this is not right. That, that what you're doing is not okay. But because of our relationship, because of our love for one another, we can say that. Because this is a quadrant where we're hating what is evil within the life of those who are in the church. This is not about going into culture and critiquing it. This is about speaking the truth and love to those who are part of God's people. And these can become tools of reflection for not just what has happened in the past, but how we can live into the future. What would it look like for us to consider all these as the way we live? I can tell you that uh, I grew up almost exclusively in the be holy category. Uh, your actions and activities need to reflect who our God is. I found myself in recent years having to fight that my primary desire lately has been to live in the quadrant that says seek justice, that, that I, I can't imagine not being there and thinking that there are things that we can stand against and name are wrong and we can bring freedom to folks and we can announce that you should not be treated like that. I've known a lot of people who live just and speak truth who uh, want to find all the problems in, uh, in the community and name them, to, to make it clean and pure. And bless the good has been hard for me to look back on my life and say, like, where have, have there just been this overwhelming sense of loving humanity, of, of uh, caring for them and delighting in, in folks' divine image-bearing? You can, you can see, though, where these can come into conflict, Right? Uh, I think speak truth and seek justice regularly come into conflict with one another. Uh, uh, The church now is trying to say that you can't be holy and seek justice at the same time. There's some that say you can't bless the good while still being holy. That that you have to get rid of all things that are not not good, even if things are good. You can see where... uh, we have to actually really deeply think about what we believe about God and about humanity, what we believe about the nature of the church, because these don't give us easy answers for sound bites, do they? When we, when we look at this, we're called to a deep life of reflection and, and introspection. It's uh, part of the beauty of our catechesis groups or our covenant groups, where we come in and we ask questions about how is your soul and have you done the good and the void of the evil, uh, that we might begin to reflect on where we are. Uh, Bonhoeffer is the classic example of thinking about Christ and culture. For, for he's part of the confessing church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this, this German priest who joins the, the one part of the church that is resisting the Nazi government, who's saying, this is not okay. This is anathema to God. This is unholy. You, you can clearly see a holiness bend to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and fleeing from evil, from uh, pursuing God's love for all of humanity. And yet at the same time, Bonhoeffer weighs his, his realities as this uh, pastor in the confessing church, as this one who has these firm beliefs, and, and will even come as far as, I think we should assassinate Hitler. These things that at the same time uh, live in different quadrants of this, that, that have different implications on our lives. We We've got to stop looking for easy sound bites that can be tweeted out or put on Facebook and accompanied by the most latest, greatest meme or GIF or news story. There are some things that we can universally agree on that time has borne witness to and that now we can kind of just live past. Uh, the church has universally agreed that slavery is not okay. 
We, we, can, we can put that one to bed now and say that that is done. But what about things like women in ministry? We in the Methodist Church have been celebrating this for 50 years. Uh, it should have been 2,000 years, but we've been celebrating it for 50 years. And, and we've said for us, it is settled. There is no distinction between male and female in terms of the ability to lead and to pastor a church. But for a lot of our friends of other traditions, we are anathema. We are going against scripture because they take a certain part and say this. Human sexuality is not uh, a battle between people right now who are, uh, who are pursuing holiness versus justice. It's a battle of people who are trying to be integrated to look at this as something deeper, something uh, far more complex than a soundbite that flips to one or two scriptures. And whether we are open or closed during the pandemic is not as simple as uh, a yes or a no answer to, to a certain set of questions. I, I reflect on all four corners of that quadrant when we uh, continue to, to decide that we're closed while we're in the red zone. We will worship online and we will gather in Zooms, but we, we're not going to come together while it's dangerous. Which seems to land us right in the middle of a couple of these quadrants, doesn't it? We believe that it's a justice thing to not put our people at risk. We believe it reflects the goodness of God in us that we care for one another. We believe also, though, that holy people gather together to worship. And so we can't simply say that it's right or wrong to close. You can look just at, at Lexington Methodism and see the difficulty in making these decisions. Exactly half of our churches are online only until we're in the red zone. And the other half are meeting in person safe. Neither one is right or wrong, but they do reflect what we think about in terms of our understanding of God and our understanding of, uh, of the church and our understanding of how we live that out ethically. Yeah, I hear, uh, well, we're closed, but the strip clubs and bars are open. You can go into a restaurant and sit down and eat dinner, or you can go to Kroger and shop. And instead of saying, well, I, I think you're right, we should... We should lean into that. I think my bigger issue is I think the bars and the strip clubs should be closed. Uh, we, we haven't, uh, as a family, gone in a grocery store except one time since this started. We've click listed everything. I, I'm, I'm not doing this because I think it is uh, it's the easy thing to do. I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. I think us staying closed uh, for our situation, our congregation, for our people, and, and the realities of us is the right thing to do. And, and frankly, I would stand over against culture and say that uh, the culture needs to care about people more. But it's not cut and dry, is it? Uh, I'm an, a, a covenant group with clergy from across the town, and, and I can hear a, a beautiful example from St. Luke of why they're meeting in person. Uh, I can... Uh, see what covenant is doing and saying that's beautiful and holy and, and we bless you. But I can read uh, stuff on Southern Hills website and on parks amongst our communities here in First Church and say this is how we're going to make a decision and live. It's not an easy answer and it's not something that we can set into one little statement. Your whole life Everything you do 
Everything you act upon and all the words you say, the things you uh, tell your children and the things you post on Facebook, the things that you tweet out and the things you pray are all born out of what do you think about God? What do you think about the church? And, and then how do we live those out ethically in the time between the two advents? I think we appeal to what does it mean to love God and to love our neighbor? We appeal to this idea of fleeing from the evil and loving the good. And I think we, we appeal to the reality that we stand in a gap that is not the world's gap. We stand between Christ coming and Christ returning. We, we look forward to things being made right, but right now we get to be part of making things right. What would it look like for you to consider that as you uh, get ready to post that next thing on Facebook? To send that next text, to criticize that next person? How will it shape your discipleship and your uh, understanding of who you are called to be? It's messy. Paul runs right into it with his church. It'd be nice to have a a simple answer for everything, wouldn't it? But instead, let's plumb the depths of our spirituality. Let's uh, lean into the whole of the biblical story. Let's embrace the community of faith around us. Let's take seriously our vows to love and care for one another and raise one another up. And let's love each other even if we come to different conclusions. If we faithfully search the scriptures and we land in different places, if if we appeal to God's spirit and we come in different Uh, understandings let's still love let's model care let's embody christian ethics and let's be the church would you pray with me holy and loving god we are a people of your story the people who uh, sit somewhere in the midst of it. The people who uh, have seen you at work throughout creation's history, who appeal to your spirit these days to lead us, and, and the people who look for new creation. Lord, help us be a people who uh, draw from the riches of your spirit, who think about the complex realities of our life, who, who recognize that there are uh, many things that are not mutually exclusive. Can we embody love for those that we disagree with? Can we care for one another despite our different readings and our different understandings? Lord, we know that we can, but it's only through your spirit and through your grace that we are made holy to truly love our neighbor and truly love you. So as we prepare to come to the table, Lord, would you make us a holy people and pour out your grace upon us? Would you uh, make it so that the world sees our love of you and love of them and that in and through us the world sees your face? Lord, we could spend the rest of our lives describing you and we would only scratch the surface. We could meditate day and night on your word and see how it shapes and forms us. And we could come to the table every week and never tire of encountering you there. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.